0: Welcome to Umoja Sessions the podcast powered by Amazingly Africa, whose aim is to foster the dialogue between Africa and its diaspora by sharing creative and innovative stories of Afro entrepreneurs, as well as roundtable discussions. Today, we will be traveling to the United States and London and speaking to one of our diaspora members. Her name is Lydia Nylander. And she is uh, one of the risk advisors as USAID's government to government risk management team in the Office of Chief Financial Officer. And she provides technical advice as well as policy guidances on projects with national, subnational, and sector level impact related to sustainability, country ownership, and monitoring critical risks at the agency level. Prior to her tenure at USAID, Ms. Lydia assumed senior community engagement roles at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, and program and policy development at the Community Oriented Policing Service. Uh, welcome, Mrs. Nylander. I want to introduce you before I continue with your amazing background. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much. I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much.
0: It's an honor to be on your podcast, Linda. Glad Glad to have you. I hope I am not butchering your name. It's Nylander or Nylander? Am I saying it correctly? It's Nylander. It's Nylander. I love your name. Where is it from?
1: You know, that's a really interesting story because... Nylander and the conventional spelling of my name is actually Swedish and I was told it means like a landholder or a sort of a barn farmer or something. The story that I have from my family is that I am proudly Sierra Leonean by lineage and by family on both sides. And my parents have told me that there was a contingent of German travelers that came to Sierra Leone and married into the family. And so it actually wasn't (laughs) N-Y, it was N-E-I, but because of issues around German names at the time that they changed it. Now, it sounds a very far-fetched tale to me, but it's the story that my family have has passed down and so yeah if anybody knows any different let me know but there are Nylanders across west africa always getting linked in uh messages from ghana from nigeria from liberia so the nylander
0: clan is is very strong and uh I'm proud to be one of them. That's amazing. Well, we'll continue with your your background. Mrs. Nylander is the former Director of Partnership and Research Development at the National Association of Consumer Advocates. Uh, that's the nation's leading consumer advocacy organization. And in this capacity, she oversaw the Institute for Foreclosure Legal Assistance, $15 million foreclosure defense project, which provided legal representation to families facing Foreclosure due to abusive and subprime mortgages. That is amazing. When I read that, I couldn't believe it because we hear so much of the the stories of people who go through uh, foreclosures and the hardships that they go through. And you were one of the key persons helping those people. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Absolutely. So, for the audience who may not live in uh, the United States or remember that time, Around 2007, 2008, there was an economic meltdown and people lost their homes en masse. Essentially mortgage companies, mortgage insurance companies, big banks, financial institutions, many of them failed. Some were bailed out by the US government because they were deemed too big to fail. And essentially people who had been put into very shoddy and negligent financial mechanisms to buy homes found themselves in situations where they owed more money than the actual house was worth, which the term is called underwater for those.
0: Um, Just a sidebar about that. And there was something called the AAA or AA AA mortgage uh, loan standards. Is that something that was related to it uh, directly?
1: Well, there are different qualities of financial products that go out uh, to sale for secondary markets. So, for example, you buy your home and depending on your credit, depending on your borrowing history, your specific mortgage gets packaged up with other mortgages and then are sold en masse to a secondary financial market. And those mortgages in en masse are rated. And so what happened is that if you mix really good mortgages with really bad mortgages, or you are not as discerning about your quality, you'll start to see this Differentiation in the market, and that's essentially what happened. There were, you know, mortgages that were given out where people didn't weren't asked for any proof of financial wherewithal, no jobs, no collateral, and obviously without those sort of firmer checks in place, people may potentially be more likely to default. And the disparity here is that the financial markets didn't necessarily see a problem until demographics of people who don't typically default on loans started doing that. And when I say that, I'm typically people of socioeconomic backgrounds, minorities, first-generation immigrants are more likely to be in a financially cash-strapped situation that can often lead to default and foreclosure. But what was happening is, given the meltdown and given the ripple effects on the, the economy and employment, people who were considered sort of sure bets, in parentheses, were the people that started defaulting. So you saw this cascade of people in really dire situations. On top of that, you saw mortgage companies really engaging in very legally treacherous behavior, specifically to low and, and, and vulnerable populations. So what do I mean by that? I mean, the types of things people who, you know, call elderly seniors or, you know, send multiple letters to their home, basically saying that they'll buy their house with cash or that they can get equity loans for medical bills. And these sort of schemes really belie putting people in loans that they they either cannot afford, that balloon after a certain period. Many things like that, which were really about defrauding people that often had worked their whole entire lives for their homes. And so being part of a legal defense unit that really stuck up for people who found themselves in that situation and making sure that their legal options were clear and where a crime had been committed, that they were able to find redress um, in the courts. Was very important, and I actually take the responsibility of having that really seriously. It was a great honor to be part of a legal effort to redress a wrong that really was exacerbated by a, a meltdown, but was but the brunt was felt by the nation's most vulnerable.
0: Wow. I thank you and everybody who ever experienced this and who was inadvertently put in these situations where the, the scheme was put on them and they couldn't afford to bail themselves out. I'm sure they are listening and thanking you for your work because... Like you said, the people who were bailed out were the big banks and not the locals, the ones who couldn't actually afford to do anything if uh, their house was really on for like foreclosure. I'm sure it was a, a roller coaster. How long were you working on the project, on the defense project? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the project was about was for three years and it was really funding um Community advocates, so attorneys, legal advice clinics and other institutions that could provide either free or low cost legal support to people that had found themselves duped by illegal and fraudulent activity. And it really showed the disparities that unfortunately we are seeing played out again related to the global pandemic and in so many other areas where really knowledge is power. And so being able to understand your legal rights, understand what information the law requires that you have when entering into a legal contract, especially a mortgage. Those are some of the the tools that lawyers use in their arsenal to hold fraudulent actors in this space accountable. So it was really great to be able to see that the law that oftentimes has to be neutral isn't sort of this warm fuzzy um approach to life you know it's often the reason that i think community mediation and resolving things outside of court is a better alternative in, at, at times. But I think where, where the legal systems work well is mandating that people provide a document trail. And that became a very useful, effective way of holding many of these fraudulent actors accountable because the sheer volume of the deception meant that they weren't keeping proper records and often meant that they weren't able to prove the effective and legal transfer of legal contracts or or mortgages and so those were the areas where we were able to get relief for many of the people who were in foreclosure and were at risk of losing their homes so it was a great way to be able to see the disparities of the of the society but also the ways that that we as advocates and people that are watching out for people can can affect the system.
0: I mean, I think you are not only a and great at what you do, but you're also it sounds like you're a community leader. Like you are somebody who enables these communities, who enables people who are down and out to really come get back up on their feet and be able to move forward with their lives and achieve their goals. And so, we're not even done with your background, so I'm going to continue. Mrs. Nylander is the former commissioner of the DC Mayor's Office on African Affairs, and is a founding board member of Trade Plus Impact, which is a global platform supporting female entrepreneurs in the craft and natural cosmetic sectors. So she gained her Bachelor's of Law at the University of London, and has a Master's in International and Corporative Law from the George Washington University Law School, and a 2018 fellow of the international career advancement sponsored by the joseph Corbell school of international studies at the university of denver and the aspen institute wow like your qualifications really enabled you to be able to do that work that you did and to do all of the work that you really do can you Tell us a little bit about why you chose this path of law and of social impact projects.
1: Yeah, happy to. As mentioned, I grew up in the UK and I grew up in a family of very avid, very opinionated Sierra Leoneans and um our family sort of functions always sounded like people were yelling at one another. I remember a friend of mine from school was at my house one day and she was like why are your parents like yelling at one another and i was like no they're not yelling they're debating they're like they're arguing about politics you know they're just chatting it's not they're not angry with one another and so um i just came from a family that really paid attention to what was happening in the world and had very strong views about politics, about the social condition, the history of Sierra Leone, the Civil War. Ebola is well known. And so I was always very clear that I came from a family of incredibly smart, incredibly engaged people, and that that lineage is generations long. And so there is sort of a a groundswell, I think, of caring very much about what happens to people that I carry with me. Mm. And so that made sense, much to the chagrin of my dad, who, like most, you know, African parents was moving, you know, was like, why can't you be a doctor? We've all been there. There's only four official areas of employment to go into. And I picked law that was acceptable but not preferred and one thing I will say about law school it teaches you how to think but in my mind I also thought to myself this is a very litigious us versus them right versus wrong type of mentality and I think what human kind really responds to is two things one Mm -hmm. is the space to be heard, the space to say, you know, this is how what happened affected me. And two is the opportunity to try to find a win-win. And oftentimes you can't do that in a legal setting. When you have hmm. the litigious, I have to win, therefore you have to lose. And so that really took me down the road of alternative dispute resolution and community mediation and how communities like First Nation communities in the US, peace and reconciliation committees and other types of institutions try to find this place of kind of expanding the options for people to re- to address conflict. So that was my interest in law. And it really blossomed into, I think, the advocacy lens that I think um, is the thread through my career. Those are the things that I think were kind of pivotal in in shaping what
0: I've chosen to do thus far well wow. and you know during our previous talks you you mentioned resilience and self-care and the importance of that and you know the the ability to build resilience in preparation for the winter can you tell us more about that and why it's so important yeah absolutely so for me i think it's important to think about
1: yourself as a vessel energy is flowing in and it's flowing out Whether that energy is you're using it for work or whether you're using it to achieve some, you know, long-term, short-term goal. And as a vessel, you really have to focus on replenishing your own spirit in order to be an effective bridge builder support for anyone else. You have to think about your own foundation. And I think that that's even more important right now with everything that's happening with the pandemic, so what do I mean by that? I think there's been an assault on our day-to-day lives. It's upended so many things that people have relied on. You know, if it's mothers and consistent childcare, if it's businesses and entrepreneurs are try- are desperately pivoting. There are just so many different things. I mean, healthcare supporting family members um but but needing to social distance mm-hmm. so many of the things that we need are no longer available to us and so resilience mm-hmm. is about tapping into yourself and realizing what it is that you need in the moment and related to winter i think we're going to be going into a cocooning hibernation zone you know so many mm-hmm. of the things that build resilience in me is you know is traveling and and seeing somewhere new and having a different cultural experience. Yeah, my husband and I travel every year to a different part of the world. We were supposed to be going to Laos and Vietnam this year. And obviously, due to the pandemic, that wasn't possible. But I think this winter is going to be about cocooning and about really making the plans for 2021 and going into it with the resolve and the, and the hope that we will see a change in uh, our current global circumstances, that requires some introspection. So, you know, for some people, self-care is reading a book and being still. For other people, it's, you know, engaging in something new and learning a new language. For me, it's all of mm. those things. And then also checking on others and, and being vulnerable enough to say when you're not doing okay.
0: I think I think you're right. Uh, for me, it's the same thing. Self-care for me means really time alone. Sometimes it may seem as if you're re- retreating from uh, your friends and whatnot, but sometimes you need time to think and reflect. And then once you do that, you're able to recharge and be back out and about. And I wanted to bring that back to your journey. How do you build your foundation? Because your work entails, has a lot of people dependent on you. So that means that people look up to you and people expect things from you. So how do you replenish yourself and how do you build resilience to be able to do that every day? It's a good question. And I really, I
1: wish I felt I had a competent answer for it. I think I have pieces of it. I'm still learning. That's my absolute honest answer. I'm still learning how to do this, but I I do have pieces of it. The first is I am brutally honest with those around me about my ability to do what it is that's required. So what do you mean by that? What I mean is I ask a lot of questions about the expectations of things going in. You know, I want to know the time commitment. I want to know exactly what is expected, what the outcome is, who the audience is. I need to know those things in order to assess how I can best support what is envisioned, whether it's a project, long-term activity, fill in the blank. I found that to be so critical because especially as somebody who has a full-time job and then has a lot of other activities that I am involved in, we've all been part of initiatives or um, projects where the goal isn't clearly defined there's a lot of people that are, you know, wanting to sort of move in a good direction, but the vision and all of the, the building blocks aren't there. And you find yourself sort of spinning your wheels. And as somebody who has to be very conscious um, of of time, I have to be very clear about how I can contribute to things that are not well established in that way so that's the first thing i would say the second thing is that i i have a support network great stellar people that i'm not afraid to say you know what that's actually not my best expertise but you know i know somebody who really is great at that and that's what i i think is is key is really there's a benefit that you can have to providing opportunities to somebody else and taking that pressure off yourself. That's, that's also a really important thing to be thinking about.
0: We were talking about replenishing your spirit before helping others, you know, building, having your own foundation set. And you were saying that, you know, you have your own support system around you that really helps you go about your day-to-day. And that was your second point.
1: Yes. Um, and then the second thing, I think they're related to the first two, but it's just about being able to say no and drawing lines around your time and your needs related to your family, related to yourself and being unapologetic about needing To unplug. It's been so great to see so many people taking this time, whether you call it a a global pandemic or you call it a great pause of tapping into, you know, baking, cooking what, you know, planting vegetables. There are so many wonderful things that I never knew that I could do because I didn't take the time to try it out one Friday or, you know, a Friday night where I would have been at a happy hour or some something else. That time where you can, instead of spending it on social media or social overload in terms of of internet overload you can you can unplug and do things that just tap into other skills and I've I've really enjoyed when I've done that. So those are just some th- three um, little tidbits there. But it's it's evolving. It's evolving for me all the time.
0: I definitely agree with everything that you said, and I am taking notes as <laughs> well, because honestly, you're right. This is the time to really look inwards and see your other capacities, see, explore the different things that you never had the time to ever do, but you're always interested in. And uh, I think this is a good time to do that instead of focusing on everything that's happening outside. When you were talking about the three different things that helped you, you mentioned your other activities. And speaking of that, you have a podcast called WTF Where's the Funding? And you're also part of Trade Plus Impact. Uh, Why did you choose to do this work? Uh, What is your raison d'être? So uh, thank you very much for the plug. My
1: podcast WTF Where's the Funding is definitely a labor of love with my co-host, Michelle McKenzie. And it really showcases the challenges and the opportunities and and real life realities of women of color who are entrepreneurs and their goal and quest and journey to find finance and funding in the current um, economic space. And it's been a fantastic opportunity to showcase such amazing talent, but also understand um, some of the realities behind some of the statistics that you hear. So one of them that I find the most disturbing is only 0.02% of venture capitalist funding goes to black entrepreneurs. So you're looking at a really low statistic. And yet, you know, you could focus on that and you could ask yourself all the questions that we would ask anyone with such low statistics about that. Or you could focus on the people who are making it happen despite that, despite these And so that's really where we choose to to focus our attention. And then my work with Trade Plus Impact is sort of in the same vein, where I think that there's just this powerful intersection between artisanal expertise and its relationship between, you know, country and community resilience, local resilience, and economic resilience and support for communities particularly in mm-hmm. the female space. So, mm. you know, I grew up, like many West African children, having a very uh, strong and intimate relationship with shea butter, with albab oil, with, with neem, with moringa, with ore, with, with black soap, with all of the tried and tested potions and tonics that our mothers, grandmothers, and great-grandmothers had used. And as a young child, I didn't understand why I couldn't just use Johnson & Johnson's like the rest of the children. I had this automatic rejection of African brilliance because it wasn't packaged in the way that I was used to, and maybe it smelled a little different than I thought it should. And I look back on that time and I think, I'm so glad that I had Parents and people around me that were able to help me understand what an amazing breadbasket Africa is in terms of raw ingredients, and in the beauty sector, in the ag sector, in in so many sectors, and and the fact that so many raw ingredients or source ingredients of everything of household um, name brands and things that you you know you have to take a a, a look at to realize that these things are sourced from the continent of Africa and that that's their only source, that they are unique Mm. to the continent of Africa, Shea Butter being one of them. And so I'm just so glad that an appreciation for those things was fostered very early. And that rejection turned into a full and utter embrace of all of the artisanry brilliance that I see on the continent and uh, marvel at and and love and champion and support.
0: Honestly, I share your love of shea butter and cocoa butter and coconut oil. It's like you use it for everything, and it's if it's your body, your hair, even for cooking, you use coconut oil it's just an all in one thing. I'm very glad too that that was instilled in me at a young age, and you saw the benefits and sometimes you would go to school with your like your forehead shining like from <laughs> from a distance <laughs> and you would feel sometimes embarrassed but it's it, like a shiny penny that's what I remember i not, not like a
1: little smoked little smoky from like the shea butter but a
0: shiny penny <laughs> and then sometimes it had a, a distinct smell <laughs> and you oh boy but oh my gosh the nourishment and then and when you come to the United States and then there's snow and there's all of that, you realize the importance of really putting that on your body to protect you. It's amazing that you fell in love again, I guess, with shea butter. And, and now you're helping these artisanal uh, women really bring about their talent out there. So,
1: Yeah, it's it's a great thing because I do think that so much of this artistry, whether it's basket weaving, jewellery making, natural cosmetics, um, or the (laughs) the natural beauty, all of it has these, have these deep cultural roots and have this significant, wider significance that I think, you know, it's not just about a beautiful piece in somebody's living room. It's about what that represents, not just to, the history of that community or that, but to the, to the women who are passing down these um, traditional art, you know, artisanal um, practices. And these things have to be supported. They have to be fostered. They have to be championed because from an anthropological standpoint, it's oral history. It's oral art. It says a lot about who we are when we preserve these types of practices and we support Mm. them. I would caution people to pay attention to the brands and the companies that are authentically promoting this type of work and Mm. support them. Because when you think about the global supply chain, so many of the people doing this work are women and wow. their families and their communities. And just like diasporans sending money home, they mm-hmm. are the linchpin, they are the support and foundation for so much.
0: And I'm sure a lot of these women, you know, it's like you said, it's passed down generationally. It's almost like a guilt, a practice that is that has been refined over the years, over the hundreds of years, for example. And, and you know, th- just these little weaved baskets, for example, they could have been a hundred years ago. It could have been a shop next to... um an iron shop that was making spears, you know? So it's history passed down to the 21st century through art, through these artifacts, uh, through these oral traditions that we're able to see and read and if possible, understand when we get the chance to. So you're right. They need to be supported because they are the bearers of history. They are the guardians of our culture and our society. I wanted to mention one more thing. So obviously you're doing all this amazing work with your podcast and your career has been, you know, really rich and amazing. And so there's this growing movement of young African women emerging, wanting to change things back home, but they're finding difficulty with funding and even having a general financial knowledge to be able to start a business and be an entrepreneur and do what it is that they're passionate about. So can you demystify the process of finding funding for these young entrepreneurs, for these young women? And, you know, are there any resources that you could point them to or anything that, you know, that they could use right now to be able to accomplish what it is that they're trying to do?
1: So first of all, I just commend anyone who has the spirit and the tenacity to Think bigger than themselves, and and is reimagining what a world, what a country, what a community could look like. I would definitely say that that tenacity and that vision is needed, especially as we look at the global situation currently and what the ripple effects may be. So, I mean, there's never, you know, I, I think to myself, there's just never a, a better time to be thinking about this type of work and what you can contribute to the effort. I would say that what I've seen work most effectively is a real broad-based coalitions. And sometimes working in partnership can be really difficult and challenging because everybody has their different agendas and it can be difficult to come to consensus. But I think when you think about global challenges You know, like entrepreneurship, like education, like health and how interrelated all those risks are. The opportunity or the impact that you can have aggregating all your your specific skill sets, I just think is worth investigating and worth pushing forward to see if what's possible. So what do I mean by that? I'm really heartened and incredibly proud of opportunities or or initiatives like the Women's Investment Club that was initiated in Senegal by the Mm -hmm. amazing Maggi Sok there. If you don't know about it, please check it out. But it's a consortium of women investors who are investing in businesses with female entrepreneurs and the fact that these women are, who have the means and are obviously smart enough and savvy enough to know that investment in women is an investment in a country's resilience have have managed to find a way to support businesses not just in Senegal, but WIC has now gone to togo and you know i I think these are the types of of efforts that women have to foster. I've often heard it been said by male colleagues of mine or male mentors of mine, that if women could work together more effectively, that they would be scared. They would be more scared. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, right. I'm curious about what they would be scared of. They would be scared of the impact hmm. and the seismic shift in society that would happen if that, if, if that were to the case. And I think there are so many green shoots But I think women working collectively together is how I see, you know, systemic change happening. And so Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be small, but I think that sometimes we're we're talking about overwhelming challenges. You know, when we think about the informal economy, for example, and the impact that COVID-19 has had, who could that negatively impact? It could impact women. Mm. you know um but if women work together and and try to come and pivot and try to figure out how to pivot in this new reality that's a different story than everybody kind of working in their own silos so that's a long-winded way of me saying that i think the resilience that we talked about earlier the passion and tenacity that you have to have for this work and how to advocate for the less fortunate all of that happens in partnership and collaboration.
0: Wow, you you really hit the nail in the head. And you know, you mentioned how the the pandemic would really affect women and and you're right because in May, about 2.1 million Americans filed for unemployment insurance in one week. But about 55% of those people who lost their jobs during that month of May were women. It's just a perfect example of what could happen when you're not guided and you're not surrounded by that coalition of broad-minded people like you were mentioning earlier. It's extremely important. And... I think the audience doesn't really understand how much work maybe you've been doing, and I really want uh, you to give us an example of a good story, a project that you've been working on. How are they able to build resilience, but also to rise during this pandemic and in general as well?
1: Sure, sure. So thank you very much. Um, you know the the example that comes to mind is is actually a. a example that happened before the pandemic but it's actually the first person that i knew i we had to interview as part of the my podcast podcast, wtf (laughs) where's the funding um uh, and her name is finlayo and she was really the impetus for starting it finlayo alabi is my amazing friend colleague big sister slash auntie I've traveled the world with this amazing lady and she's the founder and CEO of a fantastic beauty and hair brand called Shea Radiance and uh she's a you know she you can get her um products in Whole Foods uh Target she's available at at, you know um health and beauty stores and um organic food stores and seeing this amazing female entrepreneur, talking to one of her supply chain partners, an amazing friend and confidant, again, uh, Francesca Apoku, who also owns her own beauty brand in Ghana called Beauty Secrets, and and overhearing her conversation about the, the struggle for cash flow. These are two amazingly successful entrepreneurs. And hearing them cry, laugh, console one another as they tried to address some of the the supply chain challenges that they were facing made me realize that it's not just about talent. It's not just about tenacity. It's about finding ways to finance and scale and grow business and fund Hmm. initiatives that support social impact. And so my work with Fenlayo was really about figuring out there's this boom in clean beauty. We've got K-beauty. We've got this all of this Korean stuff. We've got makeup brands now that are talking about, you know, clean ingredients um, and and knowing where the, so- you know, sourcing of materials comes from. You've had bands like The Body Shop who have, you know, uh, touted this as as the core um theme of their efforts and what you haven't necessarily seen is the people who pick and source and and develop these products actually be the the key beneficiaries for these boom from, from from the boom in in these products um making their way onto the global stage so it was important for us to make social impact and improving the lives of the women at the base and the foundation of the supply chain and having them recognize what, what their efforts were going to. So many people don't know this, but the majority of shea kernels and shea butter actually ends up in food. So 90% of shea butter ends up in food. It ends up in confectionery, mostly in chocolate and sweets. And many of the women that were picking kernels didn't know that. And so it was really important to say the products to the people who sort, you know, who who create the source ingredients and conversely connect the customers with the realities of the women who are you know, collecting and producing the products that you use. So what do I mean by that? Sourcing and picking shea kernels is a very dangerous activity. You are typically getting up at the crack of dawn with no light. You're in parklands with no protective materials, uh, no protective equipment. Women are often bitten by snakes and scorpions. Picking of shea. In rural areas where it could take hours to get to a clinic, they are often, you know, scratched by grasses and, you know, other types of materials. It is back-breaking work. It can, you know, carrying bags and bags of kernels for miles and miles and miles is is not work for the faint-hearted. Conversely, processing shea butter creates Mm. um incredible health um, issues whether it's the inhalation of smoke or burning oil and these are things that people don't know so it's important to make a concerted effort when you buy products to think about the story think about how this product got to you and where you can make investments in people who put that at the at the center of their business raison on as you mention, or their rationale and are still mm. profitable that's the key yeah it's not to be thinking about the base of the supply chain and not being able to be profitable because you're not helping if you're not able to pay you know processes or pickers but to be thinking about their um, livelihood thinking about their children thinking about how they sustain their communities Um, And telling that story whilst also being savvy businesswomen is how I think um, Fenlayo and Francesca stand out. And so helping them tell that story through social impact, um, through the 1000 Women campaign and through other initiatives that they've um, taken on was just indeed a pleasure, a joy. I love this work. I do it because those stories need to be told and the amazing tenacity and energy and vibrance that I see in the women that that work in in this industry is a driver it's a catalyst for what I do they were kind enough to allow me to work for a day in one of the processing plants uh, they all laughed because they were like this one's not up to manual labor she's not <laughs> but it was I, I they were kind enough to show me what they did every day it is. I cannot tell you how they made such a hard job look so easy with a smile on their face and all they wanted to do they didn't want charity they just wanted help to stay safe and they wanted to work and so the story Mm. was buy products that allow us to work and so you know for people out there making decisions around clean beauty look out for products that are supporting that supply chain and that and the base of the women who who are fundamental
0: to it yeah and i think that not just uh, for beauty, but even in general, I think we've reached an era where uh, we need to be aware of what we put on our bodies, in our bodies, and what we surround ourselves with and where it comes from in terms of, you know, being healthy and sitting well with yourself, knowing that you are doing something that's also contributing to the well-being of somebody halfway across the world who definitely needs them for their own sustainability, for the sustainability of their family. You know, like you say, we don't really see the people who are sourcing the product that is in front of you and that is really nicely bottled and that you're about to use. But it's good to to know that you're choosing a brand that is doing something good for the environment. I think that's what I'm learning from what you're telling me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. Really, really important. I think if there's one thing that you can do to build the resilience we were talking about earlier, but also the resilience of, of women around the world is to do good and feel good. You know, it can be a win-win. Um, you just need to do some research on the companies that are really doing it and authentically
0: giving back and supporting that supply chain. So it's, it, it can be done. That's amazing, truly amazing, and I thank you for share, sharing that story of Shea Radiance. And it's good for our listeners to hear, you know, positive stories, positive outcomes, and you know, now they'll be able to go and research Shea Radiance and maybe be able to research uh, Felayo and uh, her business partner Francesca Opoku and see, you know, what was their trajectory, what was their journey, how can they do the same thing as well? Absolutely. I mean, another another story that
1: comes to mind is a friend, dear friend, and somebody that I worked with um, on the African diaspora in the past called Margaret Kamara. And she is the founder of District Chop Bar, which is based in DC. And she created a mobile West African fusion concept food delivery service. In the midst of pandemic, she cooks out of a commercial kitchen and she's been able to create this beautiful experience for people who can maybe are working full time and want to have a lunchtime West African, you know, experience or feed their kids and it's it's wonderful and she's been able to pivot at a time where restaurants and dining establishments are really feeling the brunt of the pandemic and seeing her really savvily and you know and swiftly make strategic pivots so that she can be effective and thrive and looking for opportunities you know whether it's you know through covid resilience relief or other types of grants and her having a very specific idea about not wanting to go into loans wanting to keep everything um sort of sizable and scalable and looking at what's available in her local community i mean these are all real great gems that the WTF guests give to audiences. And you they're tried and tested because they're telling their own firsthand experiences. So that's another beautiful experience that I think you get to hear how people are experiencing things that you're experiencing in the moment. We're all experiencing COVID right now in the moment. And so hearing how other people are facing the challenges is, is again, important, I think.
0: Yeah, and thank you so much for sharing those stories because it's really important for people to understand that there will be challenges and that these experiences can be hard, but that they could also be a guide and a way for them to forge their path in that business. So uh, this question that's coming, you should probably have expected it. So where is the funding for these young women, uh, for these young entrepreneurs? Um, Is it in an accelerator program? Can you tell us about um, these resources? How can they access these resources? Absolutely. So
1: again, another shameless plug that the source of many of the, you know, accelerator programs, investor networks, you know, we share all of that information, all that good stuff on the podcast. Um, And you hear it from the guests firsthand. They tell you about their experiences, what worked for them, what didn't work for them, what they've researched. So definitely like, rate, subscribe, and you know, that information is is there at your fingertips. So that's your first port of call. In terms of funding, I think one of the things, or finance, one of the things that I would say is, first of all, having an understanding about different types of, of financial models, financial products and mechanisms is really important. So for me, Tapping into your local business, economic growth council, whether that's through your state or your new municipality or your county, get as much of that information as possible. So if you're thinking about starting a business, let, let the mentors, the program that I'm thinking of is called SCORE, but there are so many others that really will walk you through you know, the business plan process, the budgeting process, the um, market research, you know, the licensing, all of that stuff. And they, you know, a lot of the resources walk you through a very linear process. So you're not sort of having to reinvent the wheel. So that's the first thing. Leverage what is already out there. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't pay for things you don't have to pay for. Use tap into those types of resources first. And then the second thing I would say is start to do the networking required to understand what would be the best avenue for you. You know, I think accelerator programs are great, but I think they work when people have a clear understanding of how they are going to use the information and the skills and abilities and the resources that are provided accelerator programs I don't think work as well when people are kind of in that blue sky imagining space. They can if they are designed for that. But again, I think it's important to sort of have a good sense of where you are and then go from there. Um, So for me, I think business networks are very important. So I would say, you know, your chambers of commerce, your, you know, your local business kind of enterprise networks as well. And then online, I mean, there are just so many resources, WhatsApp groups, Instagram, pages to follow. I particularly love fellow podcaster Inside Hustle Pro. I think that's a fantastic resource. There are so many great podcasts, particularly for women of color now, and Instagram pages Mm -hmm. that are just, they put all the information out there, particularly around the pandemic and some of the resources that became available in the creative arts. I literally just went on Instagram, typed in black women entrepreneurs, looked around at the types of uh, content that worked for me, followed those pages and the information comes to you. I think you have to just be savvy about your specific where your where you want to go what your specific interest is and do some research then and then plot your direction from there again understand what debt equity is understand what 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 makes a successful pitch um investment pitch understand the financial mechanisms that are available make sure that you understand you know what is required to get collateral from a bank those things are out there um, and they're out there in an in array of different uh, mechanisms. Some people, you know, they respond better to sort of like the first hand account that somebody did something. And then they, you know, it will trigger or pique their interest to move into some other, um, you know, place in research. So I think tap in and obtain information in ways that, that resonate with you. And then go from there. But I would definitely say, um, social—you know—social media, of course, is a, a great um, is the place to go for so many funding resources. Um, I would also say joining angel investing networks in your neighborhood or your community is also a, another key way of understanding how finance works and what. what entrepreneurs need to do to be successful so follow people who have gained funding they will tell you how they did it everybody wants a good news story um and just don't reinvent the wheel get as much of leveraged content as you can
0: wow 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 thank you so much for that let me recap what you said so you said uh leverage what is already out there like you said do not reinvent a wheel find people who have already done that uh to network uh network 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 um especially uh, in terms of the business networks and go to your local chamber of commerce angel investing networks programs and um and leverage the use of social media I had never thought about that you know using social media like instagram and typing black women entrepreneurs that never came to my mind so thank you for that that's um there's so many ways that you can go about doing this, but it, sometimes you can feel stuck because you've never done it before or you uh, do not have good examples in front of you of, uh, or surrounding you of people who have done the work before. So it may seem like an uphill battle, but um, it seems like these tools will be able to help you uh, make it more manageable and break down the process for you, especially uh, those listening and who want to start their own businesses. Honestly, Lydia, I think we're coming almost to the close of this podcast. I want to thank you for coming here and giving us all this great information. Any last words of advice, Any anything that you feel The listeners must know before they embark on something like that maybe something that you wish you had known before starting
1: (laughs) yeah I that's it's such a good question it's you know you think back and you you wonder what you would tell yourself yourself um as you sort of started your your journey and I think the thing that resonates with me is just you know don't be afraid to have an opinion don't be afraid to step out there and make make ripples. You have great ideas and I, I this goes for your audience, it goes for, for you, Linda. People have fantastic ideas, but the moment that you just keep them in your head, they're lost forever. And one statistic that I heard that really does resonate with me is just that um, apparently, if there are 10 um, criterias for a job announcement, and men think that they have three or more, that they'll go ahead and apply. And women, if they have seven or less, they won't apply. So it's just that gap between that that mindset that says like, oh, I can't wing it, I don't have enough experience. Whereas you have people who are just like, well, you know, is not bad, you know, let me go for it and let's see what happens. And so I just think, don't doubt your own magic. Don't doubt your own um, excellence and know that you have something to contribute. You have something to say and find places and spaces that will help nurture that um, and help you channel your energies effectively and help you not waste time because time <laughs> is a very, very important commodity. I would also say, you know, have fun and don't take everything so seriously. You know, the things that you're so hit up about or, you know, making a mistake, it's in the grand scheme of things, it's just helping you to do things better. So follow your passions, definitely, you know, with a certain amount of, you know, humility and hilarity as part of it, but contribute. And, and don't be afraid to, you know, to be a trailblazer.
0: Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much, Lydia. You have been a wealth of knowledge from the beginning to end. And you are definitely somebody to look up to, somebody to listen to because you've done the work, you've been there and you know the results that come from putting in the work and from doing everything you can with everything that you have around you. So I thank you for coming on Umoja Sessions podcast. I thank you for enlightening us and demystifying this process of uh, funding, especially for Black women and young uh, entrepreneurs who may be in communities where these resources are not readily available. And one thing I would say that I learned from you is definitely for people who want to start out there is to to find a mentor, find people who have already done the work, see the work that they've done and find ways that you can improve in that and undertake that which you find dear to yourself. So to end this podcast, I would like to end with the same proverb that I always end with, which is a Swahili proverb, which means education is the foundation of knowledge. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, My name is Linda Foyne. I'm an Afro-optimist and a princess warrior.